Hello, and welcome to RipperCast, your podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel murders. This is episode 26, Dorset Street, Fiona Rule on the Worst Street in London. I'm Jonathan Mangus, and our special guest today from London, England is Fiona Rule, author of the book The Worst Street in London. Also joining the show today is Coral Kelly from the Whitechapel Society. She is also in London, England, and the author of the first Jack the Ripper victim photographs, Robert McLaughlin, who's coming to us from Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Everybody, thanks for being on the show today, and um, thank you, Fiona, for agreeing to be our guest. A pleasure. Now, your, your new book, The Worst Street in London, is set to be released here in, in about a week. Is that right? Yes, it's released on the uh, 9th of September. Okay. And um, is it going to have just UK distribution, or is it going no, to be available in the United States as well? Yeah, it will be available um, in the US as well. Um, I, if you look on, um, I don't know whether, can I advertise on here? Can you, have the, can you have the what? Can I advertise oh, on here? Oh, of course. Oh, yeah. This is. <laughs> yes. um, it's available on Amazon.com. Okay. Both .com and .co.uk then? Yes. Right. Okay. Now, you were gracious enough to send me and Coral advanced proof copy. Um, so she and I have read the book. But Robert has not, but he'll, he'll uh, play along. I'll follow the conversation. Right. Basically, uh, I mean, I really loved the book. And um, it's not just a history of Dorset Street. You go and chart the history of Spitalfields and really talk a lot about just that whole neighborhood. And I find it very interesting going from way back to where it was just a country retreat for uh, city folk. Up until uh, and, and then you chart um, Spitalfields through its waves of immigrants that it, that it experienced throughout history, and yeah. I, it's it's really very interesting. If you're prepared to, to like in a nutshell, could you give us a little um, history lesson on, on the history of Spitalfields for us? Uh, yeah, certainly. Uh, firstly, uh, thank you very much for your kind words about the book. I'm really pleased that you uh, enjoyed it. Um, basically, Spitalfields started off as literally a field behind the Hospital of St. Mary, um, which was located just off Bishopsgate Street, for those people who know where that is. Um, and over the years, because of its proximity, really, to the City of London, it uh, gradually became more and more developed. Um, and really got put on the map when the Huguenots came over from France um, in the late 17th century uh, because they chose the area um, to uh, be their sort of main centre for silk weaving and consequently the area got very developed because um, of the wealth that was coming in due to the silk weavers um, and really experienced about 150 years of um, real success um, and then after that, unfortunately, once the silk weavers left, and this is quite a complicated, you know, complicated reasons why they did leave, um, so I won't go into it now, but as the silk weavers gradually left and that industry went into decline, so did the area, unfortunately, and it really reached the depths of depravity by the time we get to the end of the 19th century, which is uh, what I'm guessing we're going to be talking about tonight. What made you interested in this subject? And what led you to write a book about it? Well, it all began really with a trip to the pub, actually. Um, a few years ago, I went for a drink um, with some friends at the Ten Bells, which you probably know is on uh, Commercial Street in Spitalfields. Um, and while I was in there, I noticed that inside the pub, there was a board on the wall that listed the names of six alleged victims of Jack the Ripper. Um, now, at the time that I was looking at this, um, I knew a little bit about the Whitechapel murders, but because of the name, I always assumed that they happened in Whitechapel and not in Spitalfields. Um, however, once I'd spoken to the uh, barman about that, he said as far as he knew, all the women on the board actually lived within walking distance of where we were standing. This piqued my interest, really, uh, because I began to wonder about what type of social environment existed at the time 
that allowed women to be murdered out in the open air in a really densely populated part of London without anyone seeing or hearing anything, supposedly. So um, I began to research the history of the area, and as I looked at various newspaper articles, council minutes, various other things, one street name kept cropping up time and time again, um, and that street was Dorset Street. Um, and particularly if the story was about nefarious activities, Dorset Street was right in the thick of it. So um, I began to concentrate my studies on Dorset Street, and what I found was a really fascinating story of a road that was first constructed in a time of great optimism for Spitalfields, um, but then gradually degenerated into a real den of iniquity by the end of the uh, 19th century. Like you had said, um, it experienced... Uh, Spitalfields experienced uh, several waves of immigration, and the early, the earliest ones with the uh, silk weavers. It seems very early on that this area of London was a center of unrest, if not decline. If if it didn't go and start going into decline very quickly, it did seem like there was trouble brewing in this neighborhood from its earliest days. Yes, I suppose so, because it was really when um, the government decided to start loosening um, the controls on silk imports, um, and the silk weavers then found that they were finding it increasingly difficult to actually make as much money as they had been before. Um, so, you know, this is where really the decline starts. And it was a gradual thing um, with the silk weaving industry going into decline. It wasn't something that happened overnight. In fact, it probably took about 50 years to really come fully into effect. Um, but once the silk weavers had really left for towns outside London where they were free to operate their businesses with much more ease, um, this is when the area really started to decline, which I would say was probably around the 1830s, 1840s. Spitalfields also had another Jack who was a, a famous criminal before Jack the Ripper, and that would have been Jack Shepard. And you devote a chapter of your book to him. Why don't you explain to some of our listeners uh, who may not be familiar with who Jack Shepard was a little bit about that crook? Well, Jack Shepard um, was quite a fascinating character, actually. He was born in Spitalfields, um, I believe, in 1726. And for people that are interested in the Whitechapel murders, um, I'll, I'll tell you where he was actually born, in White's Row, um, which is the road that actually runs down by the side of Dorset Street. Um, now, basically, Jack was born into quite a poor family and was apprenticed um, to, I, I believe, a carpenter to start with and then a locksmith. And he learnt the art of picking locks. Um, unfortunately, once he got, he got himself interested in girls, he decided that his apprentice wages weren't enough really to make ends meet and take his girls out and have a good time. So uh, he took to uh, breaking into houses. Uh, now, Jack was very good at breaking into houses, um, but he wasn't very good at evading capture. And consequently, he quite regularly got caught in the middle of burglaries or just after um, and it's there, really, that he became quite a famous character because he developed ways of breaking out of various jails. Um, and he was incredibly skillful at this. And uh, the authorities, every time they caught him, they decided to, uh, you know, sort of put him in a much more stronger jail. <laughs> he kept on breaking out of them. This happened about three or four times until he was finally caught. And I, if I remember correctly, he was actually chained to the floor in his last prison cell to avoid uh, people being older, him being able to break out. Um, and consequently, he became a real national celebrity. And um, thousands of people turned up to see him hanged, which today seems quite barbaric, really. But of course, in the 1700s, this was quite a normal thing to do. And his last escape, as you had mentioned, the one where he was uh, chained to the floor, he may have had aid from visitors to his cell or from ja his jailers. It's not really clear, but that was his most famous escape was his last one. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, the, his escapes just got more and more um, impressive, really. Uh, the more the authorities tried to chain him down, the more impressive the escapes got. <laughs> uh, Jack Shepard ended up being executed. For, he did for his crimes, and he was 
he became in his time in his lifetime a local hero to the people of Spitalfields. What kind of early relationship did the residents of Spitalfields have with the police? Um, early relationship. Well, at the time of Jack Shepard, you wouldn't have had the uh, the Metropolitan Police Force. Um, to be honest, I'm not too sure about you know sort of the, the very beginnings of the police there, but certainly by the 1880s, uh, the people of Spitalfields. Well, it depends which ones you're talking about, but certainly the people of Dorset Street. Um, didn't have a huge amount of respect for the police. Um, and also there was an awful lot of corruption going on within the police force um, and Spitalfields at the time as well. Uh, maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit about the foundings of Dorset Street and, and what, what kind of street it started out as and kind of how it, how it led to uh, be the Dorset Street that we know and love from <laughs> the 1880s. <laughs> well, Dorset Street started out um, as a street that was really built for um, not the heads of silk weaving firms, more the people that worked for them, um, but were you know were quite high up in the, in the whole hierarchy of it. Um, it was it was lined with houses and a few shops. Um, the Blue Coat Boy, which was in the middle of the street, was a very old pub, and I, I believe it was probably there when the street was first built in the. Uh, in the late 1600s. Um, over time, um, obviously, once, as I said, the silk weavers left, um, really the building started to degenerate quite quickly and nobody really had the money or the inclination to do much renovation work to them. Uh, because of the increasing waves of immigrants that were coming into the area, um, by the 1850s, 1860s, you had buildings being snapped up by pretty unscrupulous landlords and divided up into um, small rooms or even dormitories um, and in some cases turned into common lodging houses. Uh, now, of course, these were wholly money-making enterprises and at the time there was not a huge amount of restrictions on um, building regulations or how, what state the houses should be in. So consequently, um, a lot of them went to rack and ruin because there was no one really inspecting them to see, you know, how bad these places were. Uh, Fiona, by uh, 1888, uh, the street as we uh, know it, uh, or as, as the Ripper knew it at the time, um, uh, would, it, would it have been intact for a long time that way? I mean, the buildings, would, would, were there lots of changes throughout the, the 19th century to the streets? Or were those buildings basically old and just renovated throughout the decades leading up to 1888? Most of the buildings, I believe, were um, remnants really from the, the silk weaving industry. Um, so I, I would guess that sort of the newest buildings would have been built around the 1820s. Um, so they would have been about 60 years old. There would have been other buildings that were certainly um, older than that. And then yeah, certain part. Oh, go ahead, Coral. Oh, so I. From what you're saying, Fiona, were all the houses in um, Dorset Street then owned by property owners and then just rented out to people uh, like McCarthy? And I mean, I, I don't know. Did he own? Did he own his rents or whatever? Um, it, it it depended. With Jack McCarthy, um, eventually, yes, he did own all of the houses that um, he had as lodgings. Um, but prior to that, probably from about the 1870s onwards, the houses were owned by absent landlords and the majority of them were let out um, to people like Jack McCarthy and William Crossingham, who then turned them into either common lodging houses, which you paid for by the night, or furnished rooms, which you paid for by the week. So they were kind of, um, they were let and then they were sublet. Right. And then these... Uh, new owners of the buildings, once they purchased the properties from the absentee landlords, that's uh, at the point when they, when they would put additions onto the properties, for instance, creating Miller's Court. Well, I, I believe that Miller's Court was actually built by um, a chap called Miller, who was a butcher that lived um, down Dorset Street in the 1840s. Um, I believe that he owned number 26 and 27 Dorset Street. And uh, from looking at maps and other evidence, I think that it was probably him that built first, um, I believe, four 
uh, cottages at the back, and then that was extended um, to six by 1888. They were probably added on by another landlord, though. I wouldn't think that it was Miller that did that. So Miller's Court had been around, I would think, for about 40 years, maybe even nearly 50 years by 1888. But the properties along the street, that that was probably a pretty common practice, uh, as more money could be made off of the... uh, the population increase in the neighborhood, they would just add more and more rooms and divide up more and more portions of their homes just to make uh, more and more properties to let out, correct? Absolutely, yes. I mean, it, they they could see how much money could be made by housing the, uh, the very poor. And so, um, yeah, consequently, rooms, as I say, were divided up into tiny little cells in some cases. Um, and um, other rooms were, uh, walls were knocked down to make kind of huge dormitories for the poor um, in the common lodging houses. So yes, I mean space was at a premium, definitely. And uh, the the rise of the the common lodging house, whether it be in Thrall Street or Flower and Dean Street or Dorset Street, uh, was this basically a Victorian phenomenon? The the rise of uh, you know actual the common lodging house uh, system. Yes, it was. It was very much a, a, a thing of the Victorian times. And it, it really rose in response to demand because um, by the, uh, the 1850s, you had a lot of Irish coming into the area um, to escape the potato famine. And uh, consequently, the area was becoming very, very overcrowded. So um, the landlords were dividing up their houses at the rate of knots to accommodate all these people. In Dorset Street, a lot of the properties were bought up and owned by eventually two men, Jack McCarthy and William Crossingham. Yeah. And then we have in Thrall Street was um, Cooney, correct, who owned a lot of the properties on Thrall Street? Thrall Street and Flower and Dean Street, yeah. John Cooney was, um, well, the Cooneys and the Smith family were kind of interlinked by marriage. Um, and they jointly owned a lot of properties in Thrall Street, Flower and Dean Street, and Brick Lane. Right, and the Crossinghams and the, the McCarthys ended up being linked through marriage as well. Yes, they did, yes, because William Crossingham's daughter married Jack McCarthy's brother. And then McCarthy was good friends with the Smith brothers because it was the McCarthy, it was Jack McCarthy and. Richard Smith, I believe, who would uh, put up these illegal boxing matches, which led to their arrest after a fight. Yes. And you had uh, Sergeant Thick appear in court to testify on the good character of Jack McCarthy. Yes, that's right. Yep. Yep. So a lot of these common lodging houses ended up being controlled by pretty much a, a group of friends. Yes, I, I, I don't know whether I'd view them particularly as friends. I think that they were probably more business associates than friends, um, with the possible exception of the ones that were linked by marriage, you know, for example, McCarthy and Crossingham. Uh, I, as I say, I think that it was more of a, pro- a professional relationship rather than a friendship. Tell us a little bit about Jack McCarthy, a little bit about his background and how he came to be with Crossingham pretty much in control of the the lodging houses on Dorset Street. Well, Jack McCarthy is, to my mind, a really fascinating character uh, because he he really came from nothing, as far as I can ascertain, and became quite a wealthy man by the time he died. Um, As far as I... Well, we we know that he was born in France, um, and there's some debate as to exactly what the circumstances were to him being born in France. Um, But he came over to uh, London at quite an early age and was brought up really in quite extreme poverty in South London in a place called Red Cross Court, which was um, at the back of Borough High Street. Now, um, while he was there, I, I imagine that he probably saw quite a lot of common lodging houses in the area and quite a lot of brothels for that matter, and realised that for people of his station in life, which, let's face it, in the Victorian period, it was very, very class-driven, people of his station in life really didn't have any chance of becoming doctors or lawyers or any one of the other professions. So the only way to make really good money was to do something that was not strictly legal. Um, And I think he set about doing that, and he did that very well. Um, I believe that he met 
William Crossingham at some point in South London. I'm not clear um, exactly how that happened. Uh, but the two of them then seem to have um, gone over to the East End and Spitalfields in particular. And um, they began to set up common lodging houses using funds from um, investors. Now, what they used to do was um, put advertisements in the newspapers for investors in um, a common lodging house, you know, whatever they wanted to call it, a property investment. Um, and they would uh, guarantee a 4% return on the investor's money. Um, and this is how people like Jack McCarthy and William Crossingham, who came from nothing really, actually managed to take leases on properties and in some cases actually buy them um, and run them as common lodging houses. Now, Jack McCarthy, his real first name was John, right? Yes. And, and you, in talking about Mary Kelly, in your book you treat a lot of what we know of her background, you treat a lot of that as fact. Or at least that's how it's worded in your book, which which we know is her background is completely you know um, speculation. But one of the things that you bring up that I found really interesting was that the brothel that Mary Kelly could have stayed at for a short time in 1886-1887 was in the 1891 census run by a John McCarthy. Yes, that's right, yeah. Who has similar origins to, to Jack McCarthy. Um, you haven't been able to prove that they're, they're related, but it seems like it, that, that it's a good possibility that they could have been. I think it's a very good possibility that they could have been. And um, we, we touched on her earlier on, Fiona Kendall, who is actually a descendant of Jack McCarthy, is of the same opinion as well, given the evidence. We, we both think that it's, it's very likely that they were related. So, in researching the landlord, John McCarthy, who uh, had the property in Breezers Hill, could you give us a little bit about what you discovered in the 1891 census? About specifically John McCarthy and the Breezers Hill property? Right. Um, well, the property um, is most definitely a brothel in the 1891 census. Um, I don't have the census details immediately to hand, but from what I can remember... Um, there's John McCarthy and his wife there. Then there's three women um, from various parts of the country, or maybe Ireland, actually, I think one of them's from. And they are described as unfortunates, which was a Victorian euphemism for prostitutes. So it's absolutely undisputed that in 1891 that place was most definitely a brothel. If John McCarthy was the landlord of this property on Breezers Hill, it lends some weight to it being true that uh, at least that part of Mary Kelly's background, that it makes it more possible that she could have stayed at this brothel at Breezers Hill and from there been introduced to the McCarthy family, which would have led her in 1888 to go to Dorset Street to lodge uh, in Miller's Court. Yes, I think that's eminently possible, and uh, I, I, you must forgive me because I'm not a Jack the Ripper expert. You, you lot will be far more knowledgeable about this than me. But I, I seem to remember that when she goes to McCarthy's um, shop at 27 Dorset Street, it's actually her that initiates the conversation about the room, not Joe Barnett, which I think is quite telling at the time. Because I mean, don't forget we're in Victorian times; it was very much a male-orientated society. So I think it's quite interesting that it's her that initiates that conversation, which makes me think that there was probably a link to McCarthy prior to her turning up at 27 Dorset Street. Fiona, can I ask you, how yeah. do you know it's her that initiated the conversation? Uh, Coral, I don't have my notes with me at the moment, but I'm, I'm sure that I read um, some account in a newspaper that said that it was actually her that initiated all that. It's probably an account by Joe Barnett, if that would make sense, wouldn't it? Yes. I believe uh, the wording, and, and I could be wrong here, but uh, I, I think you're right in that the wording at the inquest is that he was introduced as her husband, um, which as opposed to her being introduced as his wife. Yes, uh, which is a strange way around, really, given the era that we're talking about. So it would, uh, uh, I mean, that I think that's how he described it himself, so that would kind of follow that. It was she who was doing the introducing and not him. 
Mm. All right, would you agree with that, Robert? What What are your What are your thoughts on that whole um, angle? Well, it's difficult to say. That that whole episode is is possible because I, I believe it was uh, Elizabeth Phoenix uh, who gave the story that uh, uh, she knew Mary Kelly, who resided with Mrs. Carthy on Breezers Hill. And and Carthy is not a name that's known. A lot of people have never found her in the censuses. So a lot of people thought it was a mistranscription of McCarthy. So uh, that whole thing is plausible anyway. And um, John McCarthy of Breezers Hill's wife's name was Mary. Anyhow, I want you to touch on a little bit about the rise of prostitution in this neighborhood. It experiences really a flood of prostitution at, at a certain point. Maybe you could go into a little bit of that, Fiona. I mean, the prostitutes really were, um, well, came in response to demand. Um, when the common lodging houses and furnished rooms first got set up, you had a lot of young men coming to the area who would work at the docks or would work at some of the markets that were around Billingsgate, Spitalfield, that sort of thing. And, of course, where you've got young men staying, they want a bit of female company. So the prostitutes really arrived in response to that to begin with. Um, I think as the area degenerated, the um, prostitutes really got, well, they degenerated as well, to be honest with you. Um, but I think we need to be careful and not give the impression that these were full-time professional prostitutes. A lot of them were women that would only turn to prostituting themselves when they didn't really have any other way of making money for the night. Um, you know, if, if anything else was possible, they would do it. Um, scrubbing floors, you know, doing the Shabbat lighting for the Jews that lived around the corner, you know, anything like that. They would prefer to do rather than actually go on the streets. It was an act of desperation for most of them. I just wanted to know about uh, the city of London, specifically because that was sort of the money capital of uh, Europe at the time. And, and I wanted to know how the wealthy in the city of London, you know, how they felt about, you know, having, you know, the impoverished areas and the prostitutions basically right at their doors, and, you know, in Aldgate and Spitalfields and, and the other neighboring areas. Um, I think, to be honest, they largely ignored it. Um, I think if you live in a big city, uh, consequently, you are always going to have something on your doorstep that you, you don't particularly like. I mean, if this occurs today. You have very, very smart areas right next door to some of the worst council estates in London, you know, Islington being a case in point at the moment. So I think, really, they, they chose to ignore it, by and large. Now, in your book, you characterize these lodging houses that spring up uh, catering to the working class and, and the casual prostitute or full-time prostitute, for that matter, as kind of on the edge of the criminal element in their neighborhood. You say how uh, some of these uh, landlords were probably running brothels or, or at least profiting off of the uh, business of prostitution, and you also go into some of the, uh, the good possibility that a lot of these shops that were ran, like McCarthy's shop, could have been used to fence stolen goods. And so maybe you could describe a little bit of the relationship between the lodging house keeper and their clientele. And I mean, it seems to me that it, it's almost like a mafia, um, the way that Crossingham and McCarthy and the rest did their business. Uh, yes, certainly. Um, I, I don't think it's, um, it, it was certainly organized crime that they were involved in, but I don't think it was um, as sophisticated as the organised crime that you saw in the 20th century that was, you know, born in places like Chicago. Um, I think these people um, were sort of forerunners of that. Um, yes, they, they did almost certainly make money out of prostitution. I, you know, I've had members of um, various lodging housekeepers' families actually admit as much. Um, they also bribed the police. Um, in terms of the, uh, the poor... They really did control the poor because what they did, in addition to buying all the uh, common lodging houses and furnished rooms in the area, they would also buy up shops and, in some cases, the pubs as well. Um, so they were really the provider of all the poor's basic needs, um, a roof over their head, food in their stomachs, drink in their bellies. You know, this was all provided by the lodging house people 
And so they really were an absolutely indispensable part of society. Um, and consequently had an awful lot of um, control because of that. That's interesting, Fiona. Uh, when the other Fiona came and gave us, a, gave us a talk, she seemed to deny that John McCarthy was any sort of racketeer or anything by saying that he was sort of a protector rather than a racketeer or a mafia-type guy. That's what, it came, yeah. that's what came across to me. Yeah, I, I think I, I remember Fiona Kendall talking about um, him sending people to sort out problem in the Britannia, if I, I remember yes. rightly. Um, I think you can read into that what you will. I mean, to that, that to me smacks very much of, um, of protection, really. Um, and I think although Jacques McCarthy would have very much portrayed himself as being a protector rather than um, anything else, uh, I think that he definitely was up to some fairly nefarious activities. And, um, you know, as I say, I have had word from other people that most definitely he was, he was up to things. <laughs> right. Now, you don't, um, in your book, claim that um, McCarthy specifically used his shop to fence stolen goods or that he specifically profited from the prostitutes that lodged in Miller's court. But you do think that that's, that is pretty likely? Yes, I, I, I do. Um, just by really studying um, reports from people like Arthur Harding, there's other um, criminals that were um, interviewed uh, by various members of the press, um, that it, it seems to be fairly typical of a common lodging house keeper that they would um, take advantage of the fact that they were among people that uh, did receive stolen goods and they could fence them and they had prostitutes lodging in their properties. I mean, we all know today that, you know, brothels pay more rent than normal places. So, you know, if you're um, somebody that doesn't really mind having that going on underneath your own roof, then you can benefit from the fact that you're getting more room for it. As I say, I don't think that any of the lodging house keepers actually set out to be criminals. I think that they just wanted to make money, and they were doing it in the only way that they knew how. You had um, also brought up in your book another uh, thing about Jack McCarthy's shop that's, that's pretty interesting, and in, that is the likelihood that it was manned 24 hours, that a lot of these uh, lodging house shopkeepers would if they weren't open all night long, would at least have someone um, minding the shop all night long? Um, I don't think the shop would be open all night, but, I mean, don't forget that Jack McCarthy lived over the shop, um, and this is quite a small house we're talking about with a shop underneath. Um, I would imagine that from reports at the time, it seems that the shop shut at about 2 o'clock in the morning, um, and then opened pretty early the next morning. Um, so... You know, you've only got sort of four or five hours maybe where the shop itself isn't open. And then I think people would still be awake and around and about throughout the night. Yeah, I think you'll find Fiona Kendall did say that John was awake all night watching. She did actually, didn't she, Coral? Yes, she did. Which lends credence to maybe the idea that he was profiting off of prostitution. I mean, that that opens up a few things. Um, one, the possibility that he he could have kept tabs on Mary Kelly and known her comings and goings during the night. He would have been able to see for himself, if he was paying attention, how many clients she may have had on any given night. Oh, certainly. Because she would have passed right by his shop on her way into Miller's Court. Well, Fiona Kendall thinks that she did that night, and he saw, and that Jack did see her pass, and knows what happened. I mean, maybe I shouldn't be saying that, but I think you'll back me up there, Fiona. Yes, I'll definitely. <laughs> <laughs> However, I must stress, and you're probably the same, Coral, that Fiona Kendall hasn't said exactly what did happen, though. No, and she hasn't. No, she. I mean, she she kept it right under wraps. <laughs> we have to wait exactly. for the book apparently. Yes, probably speaking out of turn. <laughs> well, not not having uh, attended that Whitechapel Society meeting, I I don't know what was said by her and what wasn't said. But a lot of people in the in the case of 
the murder of Mary Kelly have questioned why McCarthy, after letting Mary Kelly become in heirs for so long, would choose this morning to go around and see if she could, he could collect rent from her. If he was able to observe her level of business that night, then, then one would assume that he knew that she made money throughout the night, and that would have given him a reason to uh, send someone to uh, go collect. Go ahead. But one, could also, but one could also make the assumption that she had customers like that every night. Uh, I mean that n- November 8th and November 9th was no different than, than any other day for Mary Kelly because, uh, you know, once Barnett lost his job at uh, Billingsgate Fish Market, she was the main money earner. She was out on the streets every night. So, um, and and I don't think you know it's pure speculation to say that McCarthy saw her come and go on late hours of November eighth and the early hours of November ninth. Simply because there were a lot of comings and goings. There was not only her. There was you know there was Mary. There was uh, Mary Cox. There was you know uh, uh, Elizabeth Prater came and went. Uh, you know Sarah Lewis came. Uh, there was a lot of people coming and going that night. Can I just put my two pennies in for this as well, actually? That, uh, I think that maybe the back rent is a bit of a red herring. Um, if we accept, which we don't necessarily have to, but let's just say for sake of argument that we do accept that McCarthy was basically running a brothel out of Miller's Court, then he's not going to admit that to the police, is he? So why was his rent collector there? Well, the rent collector was there because she was in arrears with rent. He's not going to say the rent collector was there because he's always there in the morning because he's collecting the rent from the night before. This is true. And another, th- and another thing as well, uh, she was 29 shillings in arrears, which amounted to more than six weeks. But that was according only to McCarthy. We have no independent verification of that. Um, well, exactly. That's what I think. You know, it, it's only his word that we've got for that. Correct. Now, McCarthy also owned properties that was frequented by other victims of Jack the Ripper. Could you tell us a little bit about some other victims who may have been in contact with, uh, with uh, McCarthy? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, McCarthy um, also had, um, well, he owned um, by 1895, certainly. I'm sorry, I'm just looking at my notes here. Um, he owned number 38, Dorset Street. Um, which I believe was frequented by Elizabeth Stride and her boyfriend. Um, William Crossingham um, owned number 35 um, Dorset Street, which, of course, is where Annie Chapman tried to get her bed for the night before um, going to her death. And another thing about Jack McCarthy is, and this has in the past been... um, given as a testament to his good character, is this this big speech he gave years later. But in response to a newspaper article that criticized the conditions on Dorset Street. But the way you portray it in your book, it doesn't show him as in the glowing terms that he probably had intended for that speech. I, I, I must admit that I do admire Jack McCarthy, though. Um, I think that... Uh, what to say about that, really? Um... I think that he very much wanted to portray himself as um, a defender of his people. Um, But I think you could also argue that he was an exploiter of his people as well, because he was running these absolutely dreadful common lodging houses that, quite frankly, could have been shut down um, and making money out of them. So this is why I'm not, you know, full of praise for Jack McCarthy. But I do I do admire the guy because I think that he did extremely well for himself um, with very little um, you know, sort of start off. Yeah. And and just and just to follow up to that article, which was called the worst street in London, um, and I believe it's on the case book uh, for people to read. It was it was from 1901, um, where a reporter from the Daily Telegraph called Dorset Street the worst street in London, and and uh, McCarthy and others convened a, a meeting um, to sort of contradict that and. Uh, it does come off actually as eloquent, like very eloquent, the speech he gave. But you know, to echo a bit of Fiona's sentiment, it it does seem self-serving. Um, you know that he did not want to draw negative attention to Dorset Street, the lodging houses, and his business activities. He wanted to portray them in the best possible light. Yes, I think another thing to add as well is that um, Jack McCarthy's family, um, certainly his um, his children 
were very involved in the stage. So I think that there was something of the actor about Jack McCarthy as well. I think he certainly had that skill. Now, that speech uh, that he gave took place in, like, the back room of a pub. So it, so it wasn't like it was um, speech out on the street in front of, you know, the crowds of the neighborhood, right? Yeah, at the du- Duke of Wellington pub, as I recall, yeah. Oh, as, as far as Jack McCarthy's connection to the stage, he was introduced to the stage through the Smith Brothers, is that right? Um, it's difficult to say exactly how he got his introduction um, to the theatre. Um, yeah, certainly um, John Cooney's cousin was um, the great Mari Lloyd, who was the biggest music all-star of them all. Um, whether or not she was the person that introduced Jack McCarthy to the theatre and to other musical performers is a bit of a moot point, but it, it's, it's entirely possible that that was the case. And it is another part of Mary Kelly's background that she had claimed that one of her relatives was involved in the stage. Now, at this time in Dorset Street's history, where you have uh, Crossingham and McCarthy pretty much controlling the street, tell us a little bit about the relationship of the neighborhood to the police at this time. Um, well, looking at Dorset Street in particular um, and using other streets, for example, Flower and Dean Street, Thrall Street, parts of Brick Lane, um, to sort of, you know, give evidence that this was actually the case. Um, I think that they had quite an uneasy relationship with the police. I think they had various tame policemen, um, as we've seen policemen backing up Jack McCarthy after the boxing match. I think that there was quite a lot of police bribery going on. Arthur Harding, who was an East End villain, said um, after the event that um, Jimmy Smith was uh, the main briber of police. Now, Jimmy Smith was the chap that ran the lodging houses in Brick Lane. Um, and he would make sure that they kept quiet about illegal boxing matches, illegal gambling of other sorts, um, all sorts of activities that were going on. Um, I know that there are some reports that say that police were um, scared to go down Dorset Street unless they were in pairs. Personally, I don't really think that that was the case. Um, But I think that they had an arrangement, let's say, with the lodging house keepers in Dorset Street and in the other streets where common lodging houses were prevalent, um, whereby they didn't poke their noses in and everything stayed nice and quiet. You also um, make mention of that the conditions on the sh- street at the time were getting so bad that it was almost, it was just a law unto itself that the authorities would just turn the other way because it was easier for them to do that than to deal with, if they were unequipped to even deal with the situation on Dorset Street. Yes, I don't think that the authorities wanted to deal with it. I think that they found it was a very sticky problem. Um, and they didn't really want to admit that there were um, chronically poor people that um, for reasons such as mental illness, physical illness, alcoholism, that sort of thing, just couldn't work. Um, They were very good at providing housing for um, deserving poor, I think they used to call them. You know, poor people that had very badly paid jobs, but they had jobs nonetheless. The inmates of Dorset Street were really an underclass. They were people that did have psychological problems and did have physical problems, and therefore they, they really couldn't work. Um, and I think really the lodging house keepers provided a great service for the council because without the lodging house keepers, you know, these people would have been out on the street looking for places to stay. And the council, I think, and the police were quite happy for the lodging house keepers to, you know, carry on doing what they were doing, really. And along with the poverty problem um, on Dorset Street, you had another wave of immigrants. The Jewish immigrants were arriving um, at the same time, and there is there is this racial or ethnic barrier that's constructed in the neighborhood. Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, in the 1870s, uh, there was a sudden wave of, well, a, a very long wave of immigration um, of uh, Eastern European Jews who were escaping um, the pogroms in Eastern Europe. Um, that started with the assassination of Alexander II. Um, These people mostly were very poor. Um, They were very much the country cousins of the um, English Jews that had been in the area and beyond um, for several um, hundred years in some cases. 
Um, when they first came over, obviously these people had very little money. They had to crowd into the same streets of the East End and uh, Spitalfields in particular as the Irish and the English had done and the Huguenots, etc., etc. Um, and there was, um, I think a lot of the, uh, the Eastern European Jews were quite scared of um, the Gentiles, as they called them. Um, they found them quite fierce. They quite found them quite, um, uh, I suppose, unwelcoming, really. And I suppose from the, um, the people that had been there prior to the Jews' coming's point of view, you know, they, they were suddenly having their area overtaken by people that didn't speak English. You know, they had um, signs up at shops that they couldn't read. You know, it, it did antagonise them slightly, I think. And um, a lot of these uh, Jewish people were, were quite scared of them. They were certainly scared of going down Dorset Street. Um, in his, it's a really interesting book, actually. I don't know whether you've read Jerry White's Rothschild Buildings, um, but uh, Jerry White in, um, interviewed quite a lot of people that lived in Rothschild Buildings, um, which was on uh, Flarendine Street, and, well, in between Flarendine Street and Jewel Street. And um, a lot of the um, people that he interviewed said that they were very scared to go down Dorset Street because of the gangs, the Christian gangs that were down there. And you yeah. mentioned in your book instances of Jews walking down Dorset Street and having epithets yelled at them. Yes, uh, you know, that's mentioned again with the interviews that happened um, for the uh, compiling of Rothschild's buildings. Um, yeah, it, it was not pleasant, really. Uh, having said that, though, this was nothing to do with the actual lodging house keepers, because Jack McCarthy um, was certainly very good friends with a lot of Jewish people. So it wasn't come from him. This was uh, more his residents that were being badly behaved. But nevertheless, the, uh, the residents of Dorset Street remained predominantly Irish and um, the Jewish immigrants to the area settled in places other than on Dorset Street. Yeah, so Dorset Street turned into a bit of um, an island, really. Um, I can't remember the exact date, but at the end of the 19th century, somebody compiled a map called the Jewish East End. And if you have a look at that, you can see that um, in the surrounding streets, um, the population of those streets that were Jewish was at some times about 95%. Then in Dorset Street, I think it's about 5% or even less than that. So it turned into a bit of an island. Another thing about Jack McCarthy that you talk about in your book is uh, after the death of Mary Kelly and the years afterwards, uh, Dorset Street continues to, to go downhill. And, and you even say that it's it just gets worse. There was a series of acts passed to try to get some of these lodging houses cleaned up. But it doesn't look that Jack McCarthy ever did any upkeep to Miller's Court. And you cite, for example, the bloody wall that uh, was still in evidence in Mary Kelly's room years later. Yeah, well, there was a bit of a get-out clause to uh, this act that uh, was passed to clean up the lodging houses because common lodging houses were defined by the fact that the people that stayed in them paid by the night... If you paid by the week, which Miller's Court was one of these places, um, they were regarded as furnished rooms. Now, furnished rooms didn't come under any jurisdiction at all. So this is why places like Miller's Court were so dreadful, because they, they really would never have an inspector looking at them. Uh, one thing I've always wanted to know is that uh, how long did the lodging house system stay in effect? When did lodging houses start to phase out and become uh, proper housing? Or torn down and replaced with something else. Well, they kind of evolved, really. Um, right up until the 1960s, you did have, um, I suppose, what were very closely linked to Victorian common lodging houses. And even today, I suppose the equivalent are these hotels that you get, um, particularly for um, refugees and stuff. There's plenty um, in London that really are pretty much like common lodging houses. Uh, they're really shabby, terrible places where people are crammed in one on top of the other. Um, common lodging houses themselves, I suppose, really died out with the creation of the, uh, the welfare state, which came in gradually um, after the First World War. And also uh, the, the um, improvements in the expansion of the area around Spitalfields Market had an effect on the, the lodging houses. Is that right? 
Yeah, the lodging houses in Dorset Street um, or Duval Street, oh, yeah. it was then known. Um, yes, uh, the, the uh, north side of Duval Street was actually uh, demolished in 1928 to make way for the uh, redevelopment of Spitalfields Market. Um, the other side hung on for quite a long time, but it wasn't really the same street anymore. A lot of what had had been common lodging houses and furnished rooms gave way to market offices, cafes, warehouses, that sort of thing. Gradually, the uh, the poor that had populated Dorset Street moved um, away to other other streets. And I assume that Jack McCarthy and Crossingham and others uh, would have benefited greatly from the Spitalfields expansion. Am I correct? Um, uh, by, no, get, by getting paid for the property? Or? Yeah, but they were compulsorily purchased, though. So I, it wasn't like they were on the open market. So, yes, they would have um, received a sum of money for um, having their properties compulsorily purchased, but obviously not as much as they would have got if they had been on the open market. Okay. It's interesting to know that uh, when McCarthy actually retired and stopped running his lodging house or whatever you want to call it, they moved down to my area of London which is sort of two or three miles away, and it's a very nice house. I've actually been along and taken photographs of it, and it was actually just round the corner for, from where Abilene retired. And according to Fiona Kendall, Abilene used to go round to see Jack McCarthy and play the piano for him. <laughs> <laughs> so they were really buddy buddies. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. It was just around the corner from where um, Inspector Abilene lived. Yeah, I, th- I mean, the roads are right angles to each other. Uh, yes, that's right, yeah. <laughs> I think the reason that Jack went down there was because his son Steve also lived around the corner. He yeah, actually. I mean, the whole family were from that area, and, and Fiona still lives quite close. Fiona Kendall, that is, as opposed to... <laughs> yeah. It's getting confusing. Fiona. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and actually, McCarthy and Abilene were in the same Masonic Lodge. After McCarthy had moved, or were they in the same Masonic Lodge for, for years? No, they were in the same Masonic Lodge before McCarthy moved. Mm-hmm. And in fact, according to what Fiona Kendall has told me, the uh, Masonic Lodge, when he retired from the police force, bought him um, uh, some leaving gift, which I think might have been a cup or something, I can't, without looking at notes, I can't remember. And they'd actually bought it from a pawn shop. And when it was presented to Jack John McCarthy, the pawn ticket was still on it, which gave everybody a lot of amusement, as you can imagine. <laughs> Obviously, they hadn't bought it from a bespoke silver makers or something. So you had said that Miller's Court was, was torn down in what year? Um, 1828. No, 18, 1928. <laughs> okay. But some, some of Dorset Street survived after that. Um, yes, yeah, so basically uh, Miller's Court was on the uh, the north side of uh, Dorset right, Street, right? It and went all down the first. side was demolished. The south side remained until the mid nineteen sixties. It's on the south side that you open your book with, describing some of the gang activity that took place in in the in the nineteen fifties and nineteen sixties on the street. Yes, that's right, because um, Selwyn Cooney, um, who was quite possibly a close relative of John Cooney, um, was gunned down outside um, a rather seedy club um, called the Pen Club in 1961. And that seems to be the last sort of um, uh, crime-related incident that happened in the street before the, uh, the south side was torn down. And, and was that pub owned by the Cray brothers uh, by any chance? Uh, the club, no, I think it was owned by the Richardsons. Well, certainly the okay. uh, that ran it had links to the Richardsons. Right. Kind of described us the area, I, we've, we've seen pictures of, of Miller's Court, but describe the area of Duval Street now. Well, on the, um, the north side, which was where Miller's Court was, is now the back of um, the, it's called the Fruit and Wool Exchange, which is, is quite an attractive, actual, 1920s uh, building, um, which was originally built as an auction house for the, uh, the uh, fruit from Spitalfields Market um, and wool also. Um, so that's the back of that now. And that building has actually been divided up into um, 
you know, independent offices. It's no longer a, a fruit and wool exchange. Um, they're all independent businesses that are in there now. Um, and then on the uh, south side of the street is the delightful White's Road car park, which has the dubious <laughs> reputation of being the most crime-ridden car park in London. <laughs> Going back to the north side of uh, the street, which is now split up into sort of little warehouses or independently owned, there's one particular Jack the Ripper walk that goes round there, and he, is, he has supposedly sussed out exactly where Miller's Court was, and he bangs on the he bangs on the door and sets all, off all the alarms, which really pleases all the owners of the of the area. <laughs> I bet it does. <laughs> yes, alarms going off every night when he does his walk about half past six at night. You said that the uh, car park that's um, located there now, on the south side of the street, <laughs> is a pretty dangerous car park. Yeah, basically, if you want to have your car stolen for insurance purposes, that's where to park it. <laughs> but would nevertheless, would you uh, consider uh, the modern-day Dorset Street to be, uh, I mean, I wouldn't call it a, a, a resurgence necessarily, but it, but it's in a better shape now than <laughs> being being uh, just a bunch of warehouses in a car park than it, than it has been in, in a couple hundred years. Uh, yeah, I suppose you could look at it like that. In my opinion, Dorset Street um, has gone. There is no Dorset Street anymore. I mean, anyone that's familiar with the... It's basically a service road that exists there now. Um, it, it just bears no relation to what went before. It's very difficult to imagine it as the, um, you know, as the, the bustling, highly populated street that it was for uh, 200 years, really. Right, which people uh, mourn the, the loss of all of the the murder sites in that really there's nothing left to see of, of hardly any of them anymore. But your book does paint this picture of Dorset street as just a, a complete, you know, I mean, it just becomes a complete dump during its existence. So whether it was, it's for good or bad that a, a street like that exists uh, or doesn't exist anymore. What, what is your opinion on that? I personally think that if Dorset Street was still around in the same um, guise as it was in the, the 19th century, it would now look very much like um, roads like uh, Fournier Street, which is just across the road and runs down the side of Christchurch. Um, Spitalfields, from about the early 90s onwards, became very gentrified. All of a sudden, you had artists like Gilbert and George and Tracy Emin moving into the area, and it suddenly got very, very trendy. But the good thing that has happened is that the people that bought the houses have actually done them um, up in the style that they would have been at the time of the silk weavers. So it's almost kind of gone full circle. And I would like to think that were Dorset Street still around, it, it would have gone full circle as well. Um, I certainly don't think that it would have been the den of iniquity um, that it was in the 19th century now, just purely because of the uh, the type of people that now live in Spitalfields. What sort of reputation does uh, Spitalfields uh, have these days in the community of London? Spitalfields, it's a more coral pronounce of this as well, um, but Spitalfields to me is the area surrounding the market is very, very trendy now. Um, however, you do still have um, prostitution there. And you still do have a certain amount of gang culture there as well. I don't know what Coral thinks. Do you want to? Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. I'm waiting for a friend on the corner of a street one day. I actually got approached. I mean, it's, it, it is. I declined, I might add. I did have my <laughs> DOS money. Um, yes, it, it is still very much like that. And another friend of mine, she, in the same situation, she was told to move on by some other woman. He was obviously trying to make a buck for the night. So, yeah, I don't think it's changed an awful lot. I mean, you've got all these city gents there. I mean, I mean, there's a lot of hotels there now. There's a lot of um, people staying there just because it's so close to the city. And they're perhaps only there for the week and they go home at the weekends. But what do they do in the, it, during the week? Yes, yeah, there's a transient population there, isn't yes. there? Yes, yeah, there certainly is. Because if you want to stay in a hotel there at the weekend, you can definitely get, you can get accommodation. But during the week, is 
in the hotels, it's the prices are sky high because all the city gents are staying there. So, I th yeah, I think it still goes on an awful lot, the prostitution. Maybe not in such uh, uh, as women walking around the streets. Um, you know, uh, I mean, these girls now are probably available by mobile or whatever. And these guys see the same girl every week they're up. I don't know. One more time, Fiona. When's your book being released? September 9th? Yeah, it's released on the uh, 9th of September, and um, it's available on Amazon.com and Amazon.co.uk. And can I say, Fiona, I look forward to seeing you on the 9th at your book launch. Oh, yeah, thank you. I look forward to seeing you, Coral. <laughs> oh, wh where, where is the book launch going to be at, Fiona? It's at the uh, Princess Alice on Commercial Street. It's a shame that you two can't come, but I think it's going to take you quite a while to get here, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it would. <laughs> uh, and this is your first book, right? Yes, that's right. Yeah, prior to oh, that, Fiona, can I just get in here? Your next book is going to be about the Docklands. It is. It's about the Docklands. Yes, indeed. Thank you, Coral, for mentioning that. <laughs> Another plug. <laughs> oh, well, congratulations on the publication of this book. I, I, it is a must-read for anyone interested in the neighborhood, for sure. And, and I, go ahead, Coral. No, I just, I just, I just want to know. I mean, Fiona, I know nothing about you. I met you on the one occasion at the last Whitechapel Society meeting. And obviously we we spoke, and most of the questions that were asked tonight I'd already asked you anyway, so there was no help in this talk tonight. But what what is your background? How I know you've told me how you've told us how you came to write the book, but do you have a PhD in something or an MA or you some somebody we should have heard about? No, no, you, I'm nobody that you should have heard about. Well, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I am. I am a, a professional writer, um, but oh, right. to write for uh, for magazines. I used to write articles and stuff like that. So this is the actual first book that I've done, and um, also it's the the first time I've ventured into historical uh, subject matter. Um, prior to this, it was very much home interest, how to decorate right. your lounge and things like that. So you couldn't get an awful lot more different. <laughs> <laughs> no, certainly not. <laughs> Sorry, Jonathan. I just need. Oh no, that's quite all right. <laughs> Is a question that needed to be asked. Um, <laughs> From my point of view, anyway. Yes. Uh, well, I want to thank you for being on the show today, Fiona, and, and good luck with your book. Uh, like I said, uh, I, love, I loved it. And, and um, I want to get a copy of it because uh, this one that you had sent, and I, I assume the one Coral has seen, doesn't have any illustrations. No illustrations, no map, no index, <laughs> bibliography, nothing. <laughs> I need it all, but I'll, I'll, I'll be getting. I'll be getting mine on the nights. Don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, thank you, Coral Kelly, for being on the show today, also from the White Chapel Society. And Robert McLaughlin, thank. Hey, thank you. Th thanks for being on today, also. Nice talking to you again, Robert. Hey, nice talking to you again, Coral. And that was Rippercast, episode twenty-six, Dorset Street. Fiona Rule on the Worst Street in London. I want to apologize for some of the audio problems we were having in the first half hour of the podcast today, but we got those straightened out, and I hope you enjoyed the show. I want to thank again Ms. Rule for being on this week to discuss her book, and I also want to thank from the Whitechapel Society, Coral Kelly, for being a guest co-host this week. You can find out more information about the Whitechapel Society by visiting their website at www. WhitechapelSociety.com. I also want to thank Robert McLaughlin for being a co-host on the show this week. We are a weekly podcast on Jack the Ripper and the Whitechapel Murders, available at www.rippernet.com or in the iTunes Music Store podcast section, keyword Jack the Ripper. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions for myself, our co-hosts, or guests, feel free to email us at rippernet at mac.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.